Our reading this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 12, starting at verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob left or Jacob went into Egypt, and the Egyptians oppressed him. Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. Because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. But now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash and the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. 
For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in all the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Have you been on a trail before, hiking, walking through the woods or a forest preserve? Have you seen the signs that they show needed for people like me with limited directional abilities? You are here. We get a little bit of that in this text today. We get a scene where God's people transition from the era of the judges to the era of the kings. So just noting that you are here, these opening verses in 1 Samuel 12 make clear of that. And so we want to just note that, and I'll explain that to us in a minute so that we can see how, in light of the biblical story, God is always provided for his people, but always leads his people to himself, specifically Jesus. But I also want to focus some time today on this potent scene of a Samuel who stands up, describes himself as old and gray, finishing his official ministerial duties, speaks to his people with his wisdom and his experience. And there's much that we can learn from that today as well. Pray with me as we turn to the Word of God. Father, help us today to see you, to hear from your truth, Father, guide us that our hearts and our minds could be receptive to the word which we just read in full because we honor your word so much. So show us, Father, what you have for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapter marks the change in the biblical story from the judges to the kings. Those verses Carl just read, look at verses one and two with me. Three times Samuel uses the word behold. Three times. That's a lot of beholding. The Bible uses the word behold like we might use the phrase, listen to me. What I'm about to say is important. Like we, we might put that exclaimer on a statement so that you're, there's no nodding off or losing attention, right? So when you have three of those beholds, in 30-ish words, there's some important things being said. And he says that I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. There's that transition. And now behold, and a second behold, the king walks before you, i.e. leads you. You are being led by a different leader now. And I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. Like even my role is being passed on to the next generation. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. With the inauguration of Saul as Israel's king, although remember there's a bit of a play there, right? Because the people of God in the Old Testament will always call this leader king, but remember what God described this leader as prince. Because ultimately there can't be two kings. There's only one. 
But with this inauguration of Saul as Israel's leader, the governance of Israel has formally changed. Samuel was the last judge of the Bible. Judges were these military or administrative leaders that God would raise up. Remember, he was their king. He was always guiding his people, maybe from flaming things in the air or or, or rivers splitting apart or whatever it may be. It was always God leading his people, but he would raise up kind of vice leaders, princes, judges is the word the Bible uses, who would in a moment be assigned to have a serving role alongside God's ruling. We have an entire book called the Book of Judges, which covers a history broader that covers several biblical books of showing God in the pre-king era, raising up individuals for leadership roles to care for his people. Samuel was the last of those judges. Saul is the first of the kings. Notice that there's that you are here. You seeing that? If, if we're looking at the Bible as one big story, there's that little red arrow, you are here. That's where it is. 1 Samuel 12 makes a transition. This transition is specifically stated as an act of disobedience. Verse 12 makes that clear. God was your king, the text says. They rejected God as king. It's amazing how gracious God is. Like literally rejected his sovereignty over them, and yet he actually capitulates in a way, never claiming it's another king, but a prince. God does that even today, brothers and sisters. In his mercy, God uses our sin to teach us. Remember the end of the book of Genesis? God had been caring for his people and took a young boy that was betrayed by his brothers and thrown and sold into slavery, who later became the rescuer of his brothers. At the end of Genesis, which almost is like the introduction to the whole biblical story, there's a key verse in chapter 50 that says, what they intended for evil, God intended for good. Like that, There is that beautiful portrait we see throughout the Bible that even our broken, sinful, selfish, God-rebelling decisions, as much as they are absolute disobedience, God can actually use that in ways we would never imagine. And we will see that with this idea of kingship. God will slowly reveal to his people Israel, like like a child that needs to have a hands-on experience. God will slowly reveal to his people that they actually need him to be king. He will let them taste bad kings over and over and over again. They are going to sleep in the bed that they made. And they will ultimately see that that good king, who will be God himself, is named Jesus. In fact, if you, again, looking at the whole biblical story, and this is important, brothers and sisters, for wherever we are in the, in, in the, in the patch of trees to see the full forest. In the whole biblical story, there are three main offices that God established in the Old Covenant to care for his people, prophets, priests, and kings. And ultimately, all three of those are fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He is the prophet of God, the final word, Hebrews 1. The word who makes God known, explains what it means to be a child of God. 
He is the ultimate priest, the high priest. The whole book of Hebrews explains and summarizes that biblical point. He is our priest who even now sits at the right hand of God the Father interceding on our behalf. And he is a king. And the gospel so beautifully portrayed this story that literally at his crucifixion, when in the world's view, he is crushed and defeated, the gospels describe as his exaltation. There he is, hanging on a cross with a crown on. Who could have drawn that image up more beautifully? With the word king in every modern language in the first century. It's almost as if God's knocking on the forehead and said, any question about who the king is? He's no king like Saul. He's a king who serves you. But it's in light of that trajectory that Samuel here, the old and gray Samuel, pleads with God's people not to repeat the failures that lacked obedience and trust in God. And he even recounts the history that Carl just read for us. And it goes through, and look at, look at, this is what your forefathers did. Look what they did. Verse 9, they forgot the Lord their God. Like those are your parents that you loved, your grandparents, your great-great-grandparents. They forgot the Lord their God. Or verse 10, they served foreign gods. Here he stands, this this man of faithfulness. Remember what he said? Have I stolen from you? Have I deprived you of anything? Have I not served you? And literally almost like a responding witness, we agree. We testify to your faithfulness. Then he says, well, listen to me. Don't repeat what your forefathers and mothers have done. Brothers and sisters, you and I must also learn from our Christian ancestors and not forsake God. This, this testimony in 1 Samuel 12 is it's, God, it's the family of God. That's our people. We too are tempted to forget God or to serve false gods or to trust in another king besides God. I love where the text ends in verses 20 to 22. Look at, that, look at those verses with me. Here's this final exhortation. After a miracle where Samuel calls to the Lord to show his greatness, and literally the text says, the people not only feared the Lord, they even feared Samuel. And then he gives this final exhortation. He said to the people in verse 20, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. That, that sounds like a contradiction. We're supposed to be afraid, right? Yeah, you, you, in one sense, fair enough. And to be fair, you have done all this evil. Yet, middle of verse 20, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, with all your being. Verse 21, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. They are empty. How easily are we tempted by the things of this world to not trust that God is the only one that's satisfied, that God is the only one who delivers. And then he ends with this in 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. In those three verses is the trailer for the gospel message. Like we, a sinful people who fail to actually believe and do and trust in what is ultimately 
good and true. Yet God, for his own namesake, his own glory, has graciously still adopted us as his children for his namesake to make us his possession. That's why we sing, it is well with my soul, when maybe circumstances might suggest otherwise. Or we sing these rich old songs that are so old there's not even a copyright anymore because they're that old. Because our brothers and sisters with us for decades, centuries, have sung these words about the blood of Christ and the gift that that offers. And we sing with them, trying, like Christians long before us, to not trust in the things of this world, but to trust and obey God alone. We need to hear that warning of Samuel. But I want to spend the rest of our minutes this morning talking about something that springs from this text as well, this image of Samuel and the gift of the old and the gray. Now, in our culture, old and gray is a derogatory term. But in the Bible, I'd like to show you that is actually something quite different. Samuel has honored the Lord and served his people with faithfulness and integrity to an old age. And here is a beautiful scene of an old and gray man, those are his words, not mine, giving final wisdom to the next generation. So did you hear that? So here is this elder statesman giving his final exhortation to the next generation. And I just have to say that the church and Hope Church needs to see that moment and look at it closely. See, we live in a culture that worships all things young. It's just in the water. It's not even something like you're being trained at home to do. It's on every magazine cover, every TV show. It's everywhere. We try to hide and escape death as if we are immortal and we deny our finitude. We are embarrassed by our broken aging bodies and certainly our wrinkles. And we literally are addicted to surgical procedures as a culture to try to cover that. And of course, even advertisements will do the same. Youthfulness wins. Old and gray loses. There was even this week, I think it was up in Canada, the broadcaster got let go because she was just simply too old. And the Wendy's advertised by changing the red-haired Wendy's girl, Wendy, I guess, to give her gray hair as a sign of protest. We think that youthfulness is the goal of success. And to be honest, we have little respect, or at least in most circles in our culture, for those who are older than we are. They are an inconvenience and a burden and should just get out of the way. That is so different than other cultures. I worked as a security guard in seminary. It basically means I was making sure air conditioners didn't get overheated. And uh, all, all, there was no water on floors. It was a great job for a seminary student because in an eight-hour shift, I'd have about maybe an hour and a half of work which meant I had a good six hours of study time. Throw in a half hour of sleep because I was working from 11.30 p.m. to 7.30 a.m. But besides that, it was a great job. 
And we would, we would be in different quarters of this huge campus of buildings there, right there in Bannockburn, Deerfield, Illinois. There's this massive campus of this company. We're all in either different buildings or different wings of buildings. And we would do our rounds every certain number of hours. There were three rounds, an eight-hour shift, and we would try to time it. So we're walking by buddies and saying hi for a few minutes before we go back to our lonely corners. And there was a guy named Michael from South Korea that I got really close with. He was uh, just a little older than I in a program ahead of me, and we became friends. And late night talks over the radio because we were in our corners of the building about theology and family, etc. And at one point, we are standing there, and there's a couple of the guys around, and he leans over to me and says, you need to start calling me Hyung. I said, I thought your name was Michael. He's like, no, there's a Korean word, Hyung, H-Y-U-N-G. You need to call me that. I said, why would I not call you by your name? He's like, you don't understand. Hyung means older brother. It's a sign of respect. You got to call me that. I said, Mike, I've known you for two years. You've never asked me to call you Hyung. Well, we're brothers now, but you have to show me respect. I said, how much older are you than I? We figured he was 18 months older. Now, to an American, that sounds completely foreign. We live in an equality culture where it's probably on merits or other versions of power, but not just by chronological benefit. But he had a hard time coming from a very different culture where he was explaining to me, you could be one day different and you get called young. But that's just a foreign concept to an American culture. So I wrestled with it, thought about it, and began to call him Hyung. And the more I would refer to him as Hyung, Hyung, the more I could see how he was feeling not just a brotherhood because we were both seminary students and we worked together and we enjoyed conversation, but because I was engaging with him in a cultural way that he now fully understood, and it bonded us even more. But that was alien to me. I mean, 18 months feels like little. What about 18 years or 40? Do we have respect anything close to that in this culture? Well, if not in this culture, how about our churches? Our churches should be different, but are they? To be honest, many younger evangelical congregations pursue growth by designing church cultures that are youthful, that are fast-paced, and that are high-tech, inadvertently leaving seniors feeling ignored or in the way. Two examples I I can think of. I remember when I was convinced while still a professor in California that I needed to come and serve in the local church, I was talking with EFCA people, specifically the Midwest, because I wanted to come home. And there was a church in the Chicago area that got word of me, and they contacted me, and they called me, and their first question is, this is how long the interview lasted, about three minutes. Their first question is, how old are you? I said, at this point, I was 38. He's like, oh, you're too old. I said, really? Is this like a, is this a youth ministry, or... He said, no, it's a church. They're just pretty convinced. You got to be under 35. So like if they're 34, they get fired in a year? You're going to hire a 12-year-old to have a little longevity? You're telling me that a 55-year-old 
with 25 years of rich experience is not to be preferred over somebody who's totally green and clueless, but they wear skinny jeans. Uh, this is what I said this to them. Not exactly, but I hear you. Well, how about this? It's not just in leadership. It's in the attractional nature of our churches today. A few of us from this church back in 2015 went to a conference put on by a church in the Chicago area that, that we thought was actually just kind of a general pastoral conference. We came to find out it was actually for that association of churches alone. And I can't remember the name of the class that I attended because we would break up, go to different classes and come back together and debrief. But one of the classes that I attended was on being an attractional church. And then they just shared their philosophy. Here was their philosophy. They literally marketed for 34-year-old males. Every decision in the building, everything, from the clothes that people would wear, to the color scheme, to the lighting, to the kind of coffee served, everything was designed for 34-year-old males. Because their market-driven strategy had told them if you get the males, you get their wives. And if you get the 34-year-olds, you get young families. And that's how you make a church attractive. I, I didn't know what to think about that. I hadn't heard of such an intentional strategy that was literally addressed in staff meetings regularly as what we're trying to do. It doesn't matter if they're living in Florida in a senior center, right? I mean, how's that going to fly? It should come to no surprise then that many older adults are declining in their discipleship. Like the church is failing, in America specifically, is failing to love and care for our senior adults. Barna research from a few years ago is, has, has made clear that over the last four decades, church participation has plummeted among senior adults. Yet get this, there are currently 54 million senior adults. And by senior adults, I mean 65 or older. There are 54 million. That's 16% of America. And by the year 2040, the year I turn 65, it'll be one out of four. Are they in the way? Is a quarter of our country in the way in just a few years? Scripture would rebuke our culture's idolatry and arguably the church's idolatry of youth and would actually say that old and gray is a gift. Listen to some of these verses. Proverbs 16, 31. Gray hair is a crown of glory. Not the best advert for a hair coloring box. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Job 12, 12. Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. How about Titus 2, 1 to 3? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So when Samuel uses that phrase in verse 2, old and gray, you and I in our culture have a negative reaction. Whereas actually in the Bible, that is, you need to listen to me. 
That, that, that's a position of authority and wisdom and rights. So let me address our old and gray. I'm not pointing or asking you to stand. Because if you have been discipled by our culture, which I'm guessing you have, because you live here, you probably have a negative reaction to older age. Though I wonder if you and I were in a church in South Korea now, how that would look a little different. But let me give you a few reasons why Hope Church needs our senior adults. Here's one. You, old and grayers, have wisdom and experience that the younger generation needs. You have experienced trials that we've never even thought of. And you've tasted loss that we will one day need to hear about from you. And we, we can't know that without you ministering that to us. We, we've, we've literally had families in our church not just go through loss of their parents, but go through the loss of their siblings and even go through the loss of their own children. You're not going to learn that in a college degree program. You have learned things from the Word and from the world that we have yet to learn. We need your wisdom and we need your experience. We being the younger generations. Here's a second reason Hope Church needs senior adults. There are ministries that you can simply do better. Many of you have more time, more experiences, more resources, and a broader network of relationships to use in service to your church family. It is without a doubt true that VBS this summer would not have happened without the old and gray. It just simply wouldn't have happened. We would have shut down and told 200 kids, right, two-thirds of which don't even go to our church, that we cannot minister to you if it were not for the old and gray loving the kids of this church. And that's just one easy example. There are dozens more that we could spend time looking at. Finally, the third reason I would say to our old and grayers here in this body of Christ, you literally have been assigned by God to pass down the faith to the next generation. My favorite verse on this theme is Psalm 71, 17 to 18. If you are old and gray or are planning to be, which would be all of us, then I would say Psalm 71, 17, and 18 would be a life verse in one way or another. Listen to this. Love this. It's a prayer of a faithful old and gray saint. In fact, the words old and gray are in the text. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Is that not beautiful? That looks nothing like our culture. Like the, literally the prayer is, Lord, you have been faithful to me since I was a child. So I'm asking even in my old and gray stage of life to not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. Love it. Love it. 
That is not just the prayer of an old and gray saint. That should be the prayer of the church. The Bible's not speaking with context of retirement. Sure, you may not need to be at work this week, nine to five, but man, do the younger generations need your work. So to the old and gray, again, I'm not looking at anybody in particular. You can define that, because I know in our culture, that's a bad word. But hear this, in the biblical culture, in the Bible Christian culture, that's a term of honor. It's a term of endearment. Let me say this to the old and gray among us today. We, your spiritual children and grandchildren, need you. This generation of the church needs you to be our wisdom and our example. Did you hear that? We, I'm 47, right? To my kids, I'm like old and gray, right? They're like measurements of bald spots going on monthly and cotton gray hairs, like... I'm in your category, but I'm not yet, but I will be, Lord willing. We, your spiritual children and grandchildren, need you. Will you pray for us? Will you advise us? Will you support us? Will you lead us? Laura and I were at our Scottish church membership meeting. Probably we'd been in Scotland two out of our three years then, and church had just had a pastor resigned, and resigned and they were trying to figure out where to go next, what to look like, what kind of pastor to even have. And it was an interesting conversation because it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a Scottish Baptist church in a university town, so they were really trying to find the right individual that could fit well just the needs of a local church and all that that means, but also in the context of a highly intellectual academic town. And there was a lot of conflict in this meeting. And I just remember Laura and I were sitting near the back watching. And I mean, we were what, 28-ish, 29, and we're just totally soaking it in. I mean, I'm just learning, watching. I had nothing to offer necessarily. And I remember the meeting got heated and a couple individuals going back and forth. And then stood up this, this man with the thickest Scottish brogue. I wish I had a recording for you. A true Scot in every way. He loved his country. And he loved his Lord. And Laura and I had sat in his living room, I can't tell you how many times, having tea and lunch between morning service and evening service. How many little conversations would he come up and he would encourage me and whisper in my ears something of encouragement or thank me or exhort me. Hey, 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 there's, there's a need over here. This 70-something-year-old man. In fact, when I heard of his passing, I wept because I thought of the loss for that church and that community, let alone his family. But he stood up in this meeting with this thick, deep Scottish brogue, and he exhorted the church to be faithful. And I just saw it. I saw his leadership. I just saw the people look to him with respect. To me, it was a scene of like a small child wrestling in the waves and being overcome, and the hand of a strong parent or uncle or aunt grabs the hand, and then the kid is totally stable in the waves. That was that moment. I was sitting seven feet away from this man, and I saw it. Like I literally started weeping as I saw this this servant heart, and everything he said was so wise and true. You may not have a Scottish brogue, which would be cool if you did, by the way, but old and gray, brothers and sisters, we need your voice. I need your voice. My children need your voice. 
My children's children will need your directions. Let me, let me end by speaking to the young. There are several things the younger generation can learn from our senior adults. This message isn't just to encourage and exhort our senior adults. It's also for the children and grandchildren to take heed. Let me tell you what you can learn, younger generations. This technically would include me as well. We can learn the importance of empathy. See, they've tasted suffering. They've buried their parents or their siblings or their children. They've seen the difficult times as well as the good. They've learned that. We should watch and learn from them empathy. A second thing we can learn is the importance of hospitality. Things I have learned from my church body here. Sitting down with a sweet senior adult who says, you know, when you guys have meetings at night, it's hard because some of us cannot see to drive. And I said to her, why didn't I think of that? She said, because you don't have eye problems yet. That, we're, that they're tired in the evening because their energy is done by about dinner. Or that when the snow and ice come, it's fun for the kids, it's scary for the old and the gray. That we can define hospitality with them included. How about this? How about the importance of perspective? A third thing the younger generations can learn. That we need a generational perspective. I'll never forget our first winter here, right? We had three kids, all of whom were raised within driving distance of the beach. Snow to them was in cartoons and a couple trips to Minnesota when we didn't even get much, unfortunately. And my younger son was literally laying. I remember we had a little overhang outside our door. This is our, literally our first Christmas. We've been here like six months. He was second grade. And he's leaning out so that the overhang is covering all his body except for his head because he's trying to track the snow. And I go out there and literally his body's not there, but his face is covered in snow as he's wiping his eyes to see. And he sits up and says, Dad, we got a real problem here. From what I can tell, this is not going to stop. <laughs> and me raised in the Midwest knew full well that there can be some thick snows, but the Spring will come, and the hot August, July, or June days will be there, and then the fall will come again, and then we'll get another winter. But if you've lived through a few winters, then you've seen the ebb and the flow, haven't you? That little second grade boy had only seen that snowfall. Man, does the church need a generational perspective. What a waste to think that the ones we're going to listen to are under 35. I met with a sister in our church body this week who was over 100. Not many of us will reach that milestone. And I was, my wife and I were there talking with her, had a sweet visit. And at one point she said to me and to Laura, she said, I feel like I've done all the talking. And I thought to myself, that's because we were supposed to do all the listening. A third or fourth thing we can learn, the younger generation that is, is the importance of honor and respect. 
Let me ask you this. How will the younger generation learn to honor senior adults if they are not part of the life of the church? One of the most important things, one of the reasons that we want even our children with wiggly legs and, and, and busy eyes sitting in the service is because they belong to part of this family. But so do the old and the gray. Essentially so. Finally, the younger generations can learn the importance of intergenerational grace. Doesn't it feel like every generation fights with the one that comes after it or is before it? Has there ever been a family living room that hasn't had an argument between a teenager and a parent? Maturing kids, moving to become adults, boy, that is tricky. Isn't it beautiful to have the old and the gray who have navigated that path before us to lead us and show us what that looks like? So to the children and grandchildren in the faith in this room, I would say regarding the old and the gray, you need to listen to their stories. You need to learn about how Christ has not only worked in them, but through them. And here's something else you can do even before you head to your car today. You can thank them. You can thank like that man in that Scottish church for whom I'm still thankful that I heard over or close to 20 years ago this year. And certainly, younger generation, you can serve them. And that is your job. A little bit more listening, consideration, and due respect. Remember what the psalmist says? Remember that beautiful verse in Psalm 71, in verses 17 and 18? May this be the prayer of our church. Seriously, may this be the, one of the prayers of our church. Oh God, from our youth you have taught us, and we still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake us until they proclaim your might to our generation, your powers to all those still to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word ministers to us, and it even helps us know how to rightly think about the old and the gray. Father, what a, what a contrast between the things of this world. What silliness must that look like in an age that worships youthfulness or wants to disguise our finitude? Father, may that not be us. Help us to learn, even from this text, of the heirs of the ancestors in the faith that have gone before us, and help us to display Psalm 71 in the way that we live. Father, would you continue to raise up the old and the gray to lead us, and guide us, and to teach us the passing down of the faith. And may you have the children and grandchildren of those old and gray love and serve and honor the gift that they are to us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.